Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You done with your Oreo? <laughs> yeah, done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, Do you really know what happened? The brother did. The brother. That's what I thought, too. I mean, that seems, like, kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... Murdery, murdery, thingy, thingy, We shouldn't talk about battery technology. I mean, I would love to talk about battery technology because it's fascinating and it's actually one of the key topics in, like, technology these days. Uh, it's, like, the limiter for a lot of things. If we had better batteries then we could have way cooler stuff in general. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that. Welcome to Mystery Murder Thing. <laughs> yes. Welcome. <laughs> if you want to hear about murdering. battery technology, listen to like This Week in Tech or I don't know that many technology podcasts, but I'm sure there's a shit ton out there like everything. Yes. <laughs> oh, I was going to tell... Oh, I'm Mario, by the way. Oh, who are you? I... My... Me... My Nama is Mario. Uh, that wasn't a language. <laughs> that was German. Oh. <laughs> or you can say, Ich bin Mario. My name is Chloe. Yo me amo. <laughs> Chloe. Good. I was trying to think of the Spanish way, <laughs> the Spanish way of saying it, saying it in Spanish, but I couldn't immediately, and so I thought of German. I took a, one semester of German in high school, so. But no, I was going to tell you, I, I heard this really cute story about these, like, um, middle schoolers who started a podcasting club. In their middle school. What? And this is up in Gary, Indiana. And, oh, nothing happens over there. And, they well, need that club. This, what, what was happening is they were, they're they going to put in like a, a waste disposal recycling center next to the school, which, of course, they didn't really want because it's going to like, who knows what's going to be coming out of there. It's all this bus traffic or truck traffic, right, bringing stuff in. So the kids were like doing a story about this, like for their podcasting club. And they were, like, asking the adult guy who was, like, running the place, like, these questions. And he, the guy was just like, why are you always recording me? Like, you're asking me all these, why are you asking me all these questions? Can't we just, like, talk or something like that? But the kids were, like, especially one of them was, like, are, is, is it going to emit, emit fumes? Like, he kept asking him that question, like, point blank. And he, the guy would not answer. And he never answered him. So it was pretty interesting. Well, we need to listen to it. I know, right? Um, but that that's, like, the power of, like... You know, that kind of podcasting. 
like journalism podcasting, which is not what we do. I just listened to S Town. That was really good. Yes, I know it's I, like super old. That's not like I've a new been thing, trying but. to. I've been getting trying to get Mario to listen to S Town for like months. So long. He like stopped listening to podcasts for <laughs> well, a no, while. I listen to podcasts. And... Just I listen to like particular ones that are like. Uh, mostly politics. I listen to like ninety percent politics, which podcasts. is boring. <laughs> which I find interesting. But... <laughs> okay, we're rambling. But I did finally listen to us now. Yeah, this is more rambling than we usually do. Although it's only like three minutes, so not too bad, I guess. Anyway, you're gonna go first this week. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Let's go. I've been ready, bitch. All yeah, right. we, we've been ready since yesterday. We just, I got tired last night, so we didn't do it. Things happen. <laughs> Sometimes you need to go to sleep at 7 o'clock. Yeah, what the fuck? Okay, we're not doing We're not talking about that. <laughs> Sorry. That's a different conversation that's why this that we is, have yet to have yet. That's why this is coming out a little bit later. Anyway. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks for... So, yeah. I have a locked room mystery, and I know the only other locked room yes. mystery, mystery we did was about Leticia Tarot, hashtag episode one, right, I think? Yes, episode, episode one. Yeah, one. That one was wild. And just quick reference, reference to, don't remember, um, this woman who was already a French spy, right? She may have been. She may have been a French spy. Uh, was stuck in the neck with a knife on an empty subway. Weird. Right. Very weird. But uh, this one isn't more, more like... Uh, it, it's a locked room mystery, but you can get around it. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay, sure. we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah. So, it happened in 2011. January 26th, 2011 was a very snowy winter day. Uh, there was a huge blizzard forecasted, and that was going to spread all throughout the, the um, nor- northeast. So, this is Philadelphia, Philadelphia we're talking about. Ellen Greenberg... An elementary school teacher recently engaged to her fiance, Sam Goldberg. They're there living happily in Philadelphia, and she's a, you know, she's an elementary school teacher. She teaches at, at Juniata Park Academy. It could be Juniata. That's what I was saying, yeah. Park Academy, where, uh, at this point, students are dismissed early because of, of the blizzard. So, she, she goes home, she fills her gas tank, and goes home to the apartment that her and her fiance shared. So Sam and El- Sam comes back and they were together in the apartment until around about 4:45 when Sam left to use the gym. He comes back a half hour later and he's fine that he's locked out. He can't get in. Uh, they have a swing bar mechanism. And that mechanism was engaged from the inside. Like, we have a swing swing bar mechanism, correct? Right. I mean, no, we don't. What, huh? Oh, my God. Um, so he he started panic. He bangs on the door, starts sending frantic texts um, to Ellen. He, he never gets any reply, nothing. He even, like, goes down to the security guard and says, like, Hey, I can't I can't get into my place. It's been a while. Um, can you just use the master key to open the door for me? But he was like, No, it's against policy. So they wouldn't let him do that. Um, he ended up breaking in to see a very, very brutal sight. Oh On the kitchen floor was Ellen. She was sitting up, slumped against the cabinets. There was a serrated knife plunged. Four inches into her chest. There was a, 
a strainer filled with blueberries and, and like fresh orange, you know, sliced for the, here for the summer that was rusting on the counter. And two clean knives were also in the sink. She had 20 stab wounds with 10 alone to the back of the neck. It's covered all over her body. Absolutely crazy sight. So 911 was called. Goldberg was instructed to begin CPR until he mentioned the knife in her chest. And he was ordered to stop. Ellen was pronounced dead at the scene at 6 40 p.m. So, investigation. Yeah. At first, police looked at this and did say suicide. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. They always fucking say that. Yeah, so because of the locked door, okay? Right. So, there were no signs of an intruder or signs of Ellen trying to run, run flee and, like, run away. Um... Her left hand was holding, um, like, a clean towel, and there were no defense wounds. And Ellen's DNA was the only thing that was found on the knife, nothing else. Uh, and security cameras, they had security cameras in, in, like, the lobby in the front, but they didn't have security cameras on the hallways that led up to the apartments. Okay. So, uh... So someone could have gotten in without yes. being seen. Um... Goldberg sat with detectives and was he was fully cooperative. I know everybody looks as like it was the boyfriend, right? Um, yeah. That's but he, the next logic. I mean, step. I mean, we, we don't we, know. We don't. We were know. just watching Manhunter or Mindhunter, right? Um, and one of the detectives even said, even back then in the seventies, I guess they knew those like ninety like, percent nah, of the time. It's the husband. It's the husband or the boyfriend or yeah. someone you know super well. Like usually the husband or the boyfriend. But, uh, he, I mean, he was very cooperative with police. Uh-huh. Uh, he sat with detective, answered questions, seemed clear. Uh, I mean, he had an alibi that was proved. He was at the gym. Uh, they searched her computer and they didn't find anything suspicious or indicative of suicide. And there wasn't, there wasn't a note either. Uh, the next day, assistant Philadelphia medical examiner Marlon Osborne begins Ellen's top autopsy at the city morgue so just a little another rundown on her chest were eight wounds one of them being the knife in the center uh which was a four inch wound she had stab wounds to her stomach and a gash across her scalp uh there were 10 wounds in in total from nicks to about like two to three inches deep um, on the back of her neck as well. There were 11 bruises, quote, in various stages of resolution, end quote, on her right arm, abdomen, and right leg. And Osborne looked at it, and he ruled the manner of death a homicide. So at this point, the DA and the police are not, or the ME's office and the police are not, have very different views. Yeah. Um, on January 29th, 2011, a police spokesperson said that despite the homicide ruling, authorities were still going to go ahead and pursue the suicide angle. So at this point, they do step one and they start to look into Ellen's mental health. Uh, parents, her parents reported that 
her behavior did change about a month or so before her death. She was like really, usually really outgoing and bright and bubbly, but she turned into like anxious and unsettled and she would make up excuses and things and say like, oh, I'm just, I'm just stressed about my job. Um, she stopped being open and, and talking with people and she even, uh, talked about moving back in with her parents just because she wanted to. So friends were like, okay, you should go see a psychiatrist. They urged her to see a psychiatrist. And so she did, and she started seeing Ellen Berman of Marion. So Ellen Greenberg had three appointments with Ellen Berman, the doctor. So Berman told the investigators that Ellen felt she did feel overwhelmed at work, but there weren't any suicidal thoughts. She never spoke of any physical abuse, verbal abuse, abuse from Sam. And she even, she, she even notes that Ellen was smiling when she was talking about him. Uh, but she did describe Ellen as having severe anxiety and prescribed her the anti-anxiety drug Clonopin and Ambien, a sleep aid. So, just a note that both of those drugs list suicidal thoughts and behavior as possible side effects. Hmm. And they were the only drugs found in Ellen's system when she died. Police investigators, you know, they looked at this evidence and they explained that the multiple stab wounds by say, uh, they explained the multiple stab wounds were, were like test wounds or, or hesitation wounds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know how legitimate that is or not. Yeah, Honestly, I don't know either. I don't know. Yeah. However, the, there was still, you know, a big dispute between mm-hmm. the medical examiner's office and, and the police. So the police decided to, yes, the police decided to seek out an, an outside uh, neuropathologist to examine uh, the spinal cord to see if it was damaged. So like a damaged spinal cord would have left Ellen incapacitated. Mm-hmm. According to detective John McNamee, the neuropathologist conclusion was that the spinal sheath was hit, but the cord itself was not severed mm-hmm. on March 7th. A few months later, 2011, the Emmy's office changed the cause of Dellen, Ellen's death to suicide. Uh, Ellen's parents, uh, Joshua and Sandra Greenberg's Greenberg, they were extremely shocked, devastated. But they were also upset because no one told them, and they found out through media reports. Oh my god! Yeah. Uh, so after a few months, uh, lots of discussion, lots of emotional discussions and stuff like that, uh, they decided to to do their own investigation. And they purchased Ellen's autopsy report and photos of her, her photos of the, her body from both the autopsy and at the scene and the uh, Emmy's investigation report from the scene. So they gave that evidence to Pittsburgh forensic psychologist Cyril H. Wecht. And he had a disadvantage, though, of not having the detective files to review. After, okay, so after examining, after going through everything, he said, quote, I don't understand how they wrote this off as a suicide, end quote. Hmm. Next, the Greenbergs retained a a private attorney, and he had a reputation for, for, 
like taking on the police. It was definitely something that he would usually do. Uh, civil rights lawyer Larry Krasner. So in May of 2012, Larry got everybody together. He had a meeting um, on behalf of the Greenbergs with police officials and reps from the DA's office. And they, and they had this discussion to try to get that uh, investigation reopened, but there was no no luck. So through former state attorney general Walter Cohen, the Greenberg's lawyer at this point, and he was he, they got lucky in like there were two there was one forensic psych- psychologist and uh Walter Cohen who who worked for them for free. He like represented them for free. And so he filed a public record a public records request to in order to get the police file. And, you know, they started bugging them. They were turned down once, but uh, after some convincing, the police allowed them to view it, but they weren't allowed to make copies or take photographs. Mm-hmm. So Tom Brennan, the, okay, yes, he's the re- a retired 25-year state police veteran, and he's a former chief of Dauphin County Detectives. He joined the team and uh, was working Elton's case for free. He noted that the lack of defense wounds doesn't necessarily mean uh, suicide, and he described it as something called a blitz attack. Certain images of Ellen at the scene also caught his attention, specifically an image that showed a stream of dry blood running horizontally across her, her cheek from the side of her nose toward her left ear. So, like... She was laying, lay, she was like laying down, right, and mm-hmm. blood dripped. Mm-hmm. But she was found slumped up against. She was found vertically upright when she was, right. you know, right. Uh, so either she moved herself or someone moved her. So what they're saying essentially there is that the body was moved post mortem, and therefore suicide doesn't make sense. There must have been another person involved. Yes. Okay. That's the conclusion. I. I, also this, I just wanted to make sure I like kind of understood that. Yeah. yeah. Um. Then there's the question of the 10 stab wounds on the back of her neck and right. a possible spinal cord injury. So um, Guy, Guy D'Andrea, a former prosecutor, and now he has his own uh, private practice, he uh, started working on, on the case and he couldn't find a neurology report. The Emmy's office said uh, he, it couldn't be found or it just didn't exist. And there was only one part of the aut- autopsy that read anything about the, the spinal cord. It, it read, quote, note, neuropathologist Dr. Lucy Rook ima- examined the spinal cord and concluded that there is no defect of the spinal cord, end quote. Fortunately, uh, Brennan discovered that there was, there was actually a piece of Ellen's spinal cord still kept in storage at the medical examiner's office. So he con- he uh, got together, con- contracted with Wayne K. Ross, a forensic pathologist, who ended who looked at the evidence and ended ended up concluding that one of the stab wounds uh, penetrated Ellen's cranial cavity and quote severed the cranial nerves and brain. As a result, she would experience severe pain and impaired loss of consciousness, end end quote. Hmm. So now there's this question of the locked door, right? Right. Which police said was the main fact that they focused on um, when determining if Ellen was was alone when she died. But both Brennan and DeAndrea noted that there 
you can you can find that shit on the internet. Like there are there are video there are several videos of of several methods of manipulating swing bar locks from from the outside. Hmm. So, uh a, the chief deputy coroner for Montgomery County, Gregory McDonald, he weighed in as well. So, he was saying that the shallow wounds, quote, tend not to occur in homicides. They will stab you, not hesitate significantly, end quote. And that, quote, it wouldn't have been impossible for her to inflict them upon herself. It's unlikely, it's unusual, but it's not impossible, end quote. Did I read that right? It, it wouldn't have been impossible for her yeah. to find that. Okay. Yeah, you read that correctly. The fact that four of Ellen's wounds were several inches deep, also she had a gash on top of her head, could be indicative of, of homicide, McDonald said. Quote, there, that is not the typical pattern of someone who commits suicide through a sharp instrument like that, end quote. But uh, despite this investigation and despite the conclusions they came to, um... The family has never had any luck with reopening the case. Uh, and my my main resource that uh, I looked at a long-form article uh, by the Inquirer, they did their own investigations as well. And this was, like, the only resource where they, like, did the story by, in, like, real-life interviews and, like, looking at files and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So... They, they pressed for information, right? So an AG spokesperson named uh, Joe Grace provided a search hi- history for Mellon's computer. Um, it, it was what she searched between December 18th, 2010 and January 10th, 2011. Um, and that was re- recovered by law enforcement's Regional Computer Forensics Laboratory, RCFL. And... That was turned over to the police on April 1st. It included the search terms suicide methods, quick suicide, and painless suicide. They also provide some text messages between Ellen and her mother. The day before Ellen's death, uh, Sandra texted her, quote, you need to see a professional, end quote. Ellen replied, quote, okay, I'm trying, just scared a bit for everything, end quote. But... The Emmy's analysis back in 2011 said that there wasn't anything on Ellen's computer that was indicative of suicide. But because, so so this is what they said. They said, or Grace's office said that because they didn't find any analysis in, in the DA's file, quote, we cannot say if anyone, police or prosecutor, ever looked at it, end Mm. quote. So this RCFL file, they can't guarantee that anybody ever really looked at it. Um, And, yeah, and they obtained it the the year before, 2010, I think. No. That was when it was, it was from 2010 till 2011. Yes, yes. So uh, the same office refused to release the rest of the files to the Greenbergs as well. So, uh... I mean, yeah, like, to this day, uh, it's the clear cause of death for Ellen is unknown. Well, we'll not know. There's still lots of questions, you know. Um, does the locked door matter? Why so many stab wounds? Why was it relatively clean for a, a crime scene? Right. She, what, what do the text messages mean? Do the drugs mean anything? What about the, the searches in her computer? Um, yeah. yeah. 
It's an incredibly complex case. Yes, yes. It really is. I have a quote from her father. Quote, the fact that Ellen's computer Googled painless suicide and she stabbed to death and I have experts that say it's suspicious of homicide. What am I supposed to say? End quote. Right. Sums it up pretty well, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, it's... um. Sometimes cases get reopened years and years after, so maybe the the next, you know, district attorney will find this a good case to make their, you know, record on or something and say, like, you know, the last one didn't do it, but, you know, I'm going to take this on and I think they did it wrong and even 10 years from now, maybe. What do you think happened? I th- it's, seems like it was a homicide. That's what I, I mean, was thinking. It's not, they, just like they said, okay, it's, I'll, I'll admit, okay, it's not impossible that it could be a, a suicide. That's not impossible, it seems. Maybe it is, but we can't definitively say it's impossible. But I think you also can't say it's impossible for it to be a homicide just because there was a locked door. Like you're saying, there's ways around that. Um, so... Yeah, but it's it's certainly very intriguing. But it it doesn't. I can see how it doesn't look like a homicide, in a lot of ways. Other than, of course, the trauma to the body of the victim, Ellen Greenberg. I mean, that's a pretty big indicator that it was a homicide, right? But I can see how other factors are pointing away from that. What got me was the fruit in the sink. Right. Is someone yeah gonna commit suicide by stabbing themselves a bunch of times? in the middle of making a snack. Yeah. That seems very strange and not indicative of a suicide. You're right. I don't know. But maybe someday we'll find more out. Like you said, it was, what, 2011, so it hasn't been that long. So Maybe. Um, What you got? I am, this week, going to do another uh, sort of a history mystery, right? And if you guys remember way back when, when we did the Nazca lines, I'm pretty sure I did it. Yeah. Um, It was episode 23. So this is um, sort of a bit of a similar story. So uh, this is out in the desert of Peru, right? Um, Near the Andes and um, near where the Nazca lines uh, were. And um, out in in the desert there, there are between five and 6,000 of these man-made holes in this uh, site that's become known as the Band of Holes. And it's it's pretty interesting. Wait, what? So I'll, <laughs> I'll kind of describe what it actually is. Okay, so um, when you are kind of looking at it, like from above, like aerial photography, it, it kind of looks like, um, you know, like if you have a dirt bike or like, a, you know, like one of those four-wheelers and you see the tracks in, in kind of the desert sand from those, it kind of looks like that. But when you get up close to it, you see that it's a- it's not actually holes in the ground either because it's like really, really hard, dense bedrock there. It's actually um, dirt and smaller rocks that were taken from somewhere else, brought here and made these kind of like bowls, essentially, that look like holes. They're about three feet wide and about two to three feet deep. And there are almost 6,000 of them. And in, in, in a row that's kind of like about 50 to 60 feet wide that runs over about a mile, mile and a half of the desert, kind of up this mountain called uh, Monte Sierpe, the, the Serpent Mountain. So does, does that kind of make sense, like, what it is? Because I feel like that's kind of weird if you're not, like, looking at a picture. If you have a computer near you, I would suggest looking up a picture of what this thing is, Band of Holes. Because it's kind of hard to describe. But that's a, does that kind of make sense? Is it... 
so each each one of them is kind of like a built up kind of like hole but it's it's you can think of it as kind of like a a bowl of you know so it's in the ground it's not like a bowl of dirt sitting on top of the ground no it is sitting on top of the ground yeah oh because that's what i was confused about and it's kind of it's confusing when you look at it too it looks like they dug in perspective thing and in fact you can probably find a bunch of youtube videos where people will tell you that it was dug into the ground of the solid uh um bedrock and that it must have been aliens because of that we're not we're not going to talk about the alien theory of the, uh, very That's much in is. this. That's but what it is. It's there, the aliens. There are there are people who are very much convinced that aliens. this thing has to do with ancient aliens, um, and they may or may not work for the History Channel. Okay, so Ooh. <laughs> right. Ice, ice. Ooh, a little dig there at the History Channel. Okay, so um, like I said, they're not actually dug into the ground um, because it is that volcanic bedrock. But um, yeah, there there there's like a bunch of oh and. The other thing, when, when you actually look at it, I think especially if you're at the, on the ground kind of looking at it, it's kind of eerie. Like, it's kind of weird because it's just, like, out in the desert, you know? But it, it – and when you look from above, too, because it kind of looks like, like snake pits to me a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, out in the desert, there's, like, snakes, and they, they make these little pits, and they come up and bite you. How old are they? Um, They're from about the mid-15th to mid-16th century, we think. But – it's hard to tell exactly because it's just like soil and rock and everything. So there's not that much to date, but the best guess that people have is that they're from like the mid, you know, 1400s essentially. Um, and they also kind of look like pimples a little bit when you look at them from above in a way. And this has uh, lent them the nickname of uh, Cerro Viruela, uh, smallpox hill. So it kind of looks like, like smallpox. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, it's kind of weird, kind of, kind of creepy. So anyway, um, from the ground though, it's, it's, it's like a kind of hard to see them actually kind of like the Nazca lines and other like geoglyphs essentially. Right. It's kind of, which, which is part of the mystery of it. Like, well, why did they do this? Um, the, the, the band of holes is definitely best viewed from above and the site came to wider fame. Um, although it was like always known to the, the local people there, um, in Peru when aerial photographs were taken, uh, by this guy named Robert Shippey. Um, on a National Geographic trip in the early 1930s. And though it wasn't, you know, the existence of these weren't really a mystery, the purpose of the Band of Holes, mm-hmm. that's the real, like, nugget of the mystery here. Yeah. And it is very mysterious, um, even to those local people in the Pisco Valley who, like I said, have have always known about, about this site. Um, and it's, fa- it, well, I was about to say fairly unique. Of course, that doesn't make any sense, but... Um, I believe in terms of my research that this is also a, a unique site or there may be one or two others that are like it. So it's, it's kind of weird in that way, too. Um, and it's thought, like I said, that it dates from the Inca Empire, the late Inca Empire, uh, mid-15th to mid-16th centuries. Although there are ongoing studies that are trying to pin that down a little bit more. Um, and But it's not, it's, although it's from the Inca Empire for sure, or uh, sorry, from that time yeah. it wasn't necessarily made by the inca empire okay, okay right no one really knows that's like part of the mystery too there was another civilization like in that particular area called the chincha um and it's actually very near the chincha valley um and uh those people occupied that general territory sort of up until this time too, the mid 15th century so they could have made it you know and at that point the the inca like took them over or whatever just before, of course, the Spanish swooped in with all of their 
you know, bullshittery. We can talk about that. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, you know, so it, it could have been them or it could have been someone else. Like I said, it's, it's kind of hard to know. But modern researchers do think that it was probably the Inca. And there, there's some reasons for that. One is that they found some Inca pottery in the area um, that seems to be from the same time. Also, the Band of Holes is located, like, right near this ancient Inca highway. Apparently, the Inca had, like, a bunch of highways. Uh, it was a very built-up civ- civilization. Oh. Um, and there's also a large storeroom, Inca storeroom, called a colca. And this was essentially, like, a big enclosed room where they had this grid pattern on the ground, like, nine inches by nine inches squares. And they think that this whole, like, deal of making these storerooms with the grid was that... so. Okay, so the way the Inca Empire worked, they didn't have money at all. Like, they didn't use money. Oh, okay. They had a a barter and trading system, but a lot of it was also through tributes and taxes. Um, Like I said, they they would take over people's, like, the Cholcha, um, and then they would demand tribute. So the farmers would take their stuff to a place, and then the government would take it from there to wherever, right? It's how it's always fucking worked, ever since we've had civilization, right? It's always people trying to get other people to give them stuff to give to other people. (laughs) Whatever. Um, so anyway, how? but how do they measure that, right, without money? It's with these kolkas with the grid. You know, you fill up whatever, you know, 10 square grid oh. with stuff, and then we know it's that much. And then what's interesting, they also didn't have a written um, language system either, but they did have this thing called kipu, which are actually um, very precise knots that are tied in different colors of string, and that's what's used to store and convey information. Essentially, that's their writing system, and there were, like, there were libraries of these kipu, um, all of which were burned by the Spanish. What? Yeah. Dicks, like I said. Terrible. <laughs> awful, awful stuff that they did to these people. It's like, it's, I mean, it, they tried to wipe out their civilization, like, literally wipe it off the face of the fucking earth. It's wonder, it's it's sad. I wonder if this was a border. If what was a border? The the holes. Oh, I don't know. I don't think so because it would be very inconvenient to make a border that way. But maybe it signifies some kind of border. I mean, if there's kind of this question of right, was it more utilitarian or was it more um, like the Nazca lines? You know, more of a geoglyph or or you know, yeah, something spiritual or. Um, I'm not sure the word I'm trying to think of, but um, if it were something like that, yeah, maybe it's like some kind of like highway to the heavens or some kind of like, you know, border between the living and the dead. Who knows? Right. It becomes very speculative. Um, But there are like like a lot of theories of what it actually was about. Most of them tend toward the utilitarian side, um, though. So what people kind of the main theory is that the band of holes was essentially an outdoor version of of the Kolka, right? And that these holes oh, were like the grid. Okay. So they would fill up fill up one of these three by three holes with whatever, peppers or you know, fruit or, or whatever. And then again, that's your tribute, that's your tax. That's how they measure it. Um there is research, like I said, going on to try to find ancient pollen or plant material that would Ooh. further substantiate this kind of theory of it. And and it's funny, not not a lot of that has been done. Like there have I was been gonna say yeah, it's funny. There there have been a lot of like um 
or at least several, you know, expeditions out to this site, right? And it's been known for a while, you know, even in the wider world. But uh, there hasn't been very much, if any, like, real, like, hard archaeological... There's been no digs there at all. There's never been an archaeological dig. But you dig. said they f- found Incan pots. Just on the surface. Oh, okay. And people hadn't even really done much of that, because it was these, it was these guys, like, f- less than five years ago who found that. And they just, by going there... And one of them didn't even know about it, and they he was a professional archaeologist doing a dig 10 miles away, and he had what? never heard of it, been an archaeologist for 30 years, which is weird, too. It's not, it's not like, super well-known. I had never heard of it before. Me neither. I, I didn't hear about it when I was doing the Nazca Lines research, but it's kind of intriguing. It's weird. Yeah, These it's things weird. are so weird. I know, right? So another theory was expounded by a man who surveyed the area in 1953 named uh, Victor Wolfgang von Hagen, or Hagen, whatever, in his book, The Royal Road of the Inca. So here's a, a kind of an extended quote from Mr. von Hagen. Quote, These circular stone-lined, although unused graves, lay in rows, seven to nine, and marched up the 50-degree angle to the slope called Mount Sierpe. That is the shaking line of graves reminding the one who named it of a serpent. There are over 5,000 such graves, empty graves, insofar as they are circular and stone-lined and of the same construction of those graves, which are found with mummies, weavings, and pottery. For years, ever since 1931, they appeared on the photographic plates of the aerial surveys of the Shippy Johnson expedition. They were the strange and mysterious pockmarks. But when discovered and surveyed by the Von Hagen expedition in 1953 and found to be unused graves, the mystery was compounded. The Inca engineers would have seen the same phenomena, but as in the case of the equally mysterious Nazca lines, they filled in those which interfered with the road and ran it over and through them. Close quote. And I just kind of wanted to un- unpack that a little bit. Great. So he thinks they're graves, but unused graves, which seems very odd. I don't really get this theory necessarily, but it came up a few times, so I wanted to mention it. Um, yeah, I guess the idea here is that they were used as graves, but then the bodies were moved at some point for some reason. Um, or they were meant to be used as graves, but maybe the invading Spanish, you know, meant that that never happened. I really am not sure, but it... That's some, what some people think, and the, but there are graves which are very near it, so which I think also undercuts okay. this theory. Okay. So anyway, um, another idea is that the pits were used for defensive purposes; that they were a kind of rampart right up this hill, creating a defensive position. You know, so essentially you could get into them, you know, and and whatever shoot or see your enemy from further away without being, you know. Uh, uh, you know, without them seeing you, I'm I'm not sure. Did the Incans shoot things? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I believe they they probably had melee as well as ranged weapons. Although I'm I really have no idea. But they were, um, like I said, uh, you know, they were conquering people. So I assume they had fairly sophisticated uh, artillery and stuff for the time. I'd imagine. So anyway, um, yeah, there are some different ideas, but they all kind of center around the site being used as a, a utilitarian, you know, kind of thing. Although maybe they had this kind of more ceremonial, ornamental, you know, kind of geoglyph nature like we were uh, kind of talking about earlier. But um, I thought it was interesting at the end of his quote that I want to say, too, um, there, at some point they became unused because 
um, yeah, people create like made roads over them and like the high, like, um, I'm not sure how long ago, but, um, that's the other weird thing is like, it's like long enough and big enough that they were like, Oh, we need to like go through this thing, <laughs> which I think has happened to some of the Nazca lines too, actually. So anyway, um, yeah, the site hasn't been very well studied. That's part of the mystery here too, or yeah. part of why there's, you know, what's creating mystery here is, is the fact that there haven't been that many like real, you know, hard looks at this. So, so it's not like a tourist trap. There aren't like a ton of people hanging out around there. No, it doesn't seem that way. Although if you look it up, like there, there, there is like touristy stuff surrounding it. Like it, you can, there's like band of holes is like on Google maps, yeah. you know, and it's got like re- reviews. I'll, I don't remember if there were any, but I guess you could write one if you go there. Terrible, boring. I know. Nothing uh, happened. Right. Um, so there have been several expeditions. There was one by Frederick Engel and Dwight Wallace in the early seventies. Um, but there, it, it hasn't been that systematic, right? And there hasn't been any, any digs. So this caught the attention of two archaeologists, researchers named Charles Stanish and Henry Tantelian, who were not, like I said, even aware of the site, although they were doing research like 10 miles, literally 10 miles away. Mm-hmm. And they found out about it through, this is where the aliens come back. They found out about it through one of the many people who sometimes call to ask them about ancient civilizations, Inca civilization, right? And sometimes these people are fans of the History Channel and have watched Ancient Aliens or gone on YouTube and seen shit. And they're like, is this real? Like, what's going on with this? Um, So (laughs) Stanish and Tantalion were intrigued, right? Not by the ancient alien stuff. I mean, yeah, it's... Anyway, uh, d- deserves to be a bit derided, I think, because it's kind of stupid. But anyway, um, not aliens themselves, but anyway. But the site itself, which they quickly found on Google Earth. Um, oh. And, you know, kind of like, oh, what is this? And then they even took their own expedition there and quickly found, again, like I said before, what appeared to be Inca pottery and also some Inca graves. So they also found that the holes are not evenly distributed but appear to be grouped into what they called blocks, um, each of which have different patterns of holes. So there's kind of like, you know, a set of holes over here that are kind of arranged a certain way, and then if you go 100 feet down, they're arranged a different way, and they're kind of separated a little bit. It's, so It's all very confusing. It's like, why? What? What is this, right? Um so they, they thought, though, that maybe this arrangement kind of thing was because, okay, this is my family or my dependencies, you know, area to, to give our taxes. And then this is there. So maybe these were built up over time by people, you know, utilitarian, again, needing somewhere to measure out their tax like or their big tribute. supermarket. This is, and it, it's funny you say that. Um, I read in one of my sources, this is essentially what a market would have been in a market economy uh, society, right? Uh, you'd have a market where people would sell things, but instead they didn't live in a market economy. They lived in, you know, this kind of, um, bartering, bartering. Yeah. And, oh. and just kind of like where the government would just provide everything. Right. It was kind of like, a um, communistic in a way, socialistic in a way. Um, so yeah, you just, you, you don't need to sell it. You just bring it here and then we'll, we'll figure out who needs it and, and get it to everybody. Maybe that's what it was again, speculatively. So anyway, um, they also realized that the Band of Holes is perfectly situated near this site called Tambo Colorado, 
which is a large administrative center that the Inca would use. And this, to them, was made it more likely that this was used as, like we were just talking about, some kind of, like, you know, measuring storing area for, for these these taxes, essentially. Um, and I'll talk about one, yet another idea of what the Band of Holes could have been, from Jean-Pierre Protzen, a specialist in Inca architecture at the University of California in Berkeley. He has spent years studying Tambo, Colorado, and he doesn't think that the Band of Holes is associated with it. But he thinks that the Band of Holes may have been used to store guano. Now, guano, as we all know, is bat poop, of course. Yeah, um, I knew that, sure. Of course. Um, Why? Is it valuable or something? Guano is incredibly valuable. Even to this day, is incredibly valuable because it is extremely useful as a fuel as well as a fertilizer. It's an extremely good both fuel and fertilizer, which a lot of times fuels and fertilizers are similar. It's time to find a bat cave, I think. Right. <laughs> no, like, it, well, it's funny. I, I'm trying to remember if it was in World War One or World War Two when America was, like, basically fighting, like, a battle over an island so that they could get control of this huge store of bat guano. No! Yeah! Uh, there so, was a war over it? Well, not the war, but, like, one battle of a war. Um, but, yeah. Battle even, over it, even. Yeah. Um, so even into the 20th century, bat guano has, you know... Oh, today I learned. I know, right? So, <laughs> it took me so long to figure out that's what people were saying when they had said T-I-L. I was too embarrassed oh. to ask anyone, and then I finally figured it out. <laughs> we all have stuff like that, right? Okay, well, my sources were Wikipedia, the Band of Holes page, Annalee Newitz at Ars Technica, Eric Powell at Archaeology, Ian Harvey at The Vintage News. Nice. Yeah, right? So now let's do some weird, weird shit, shit in the news. In the news. Okay. I want to go first. Yeah, you go first. Uh, so mine. Okay, everybody, this is fucking <laughs> perfect. <clears throat> this is from a uh, a local local Fox News channel in uh, Crestview. Guess where? Florida. <laughs> so, um, the authorities there say that a thirteen-year-old Tennessee boy was charged with stabbing his brother. Uh, he told invest, he, okay. So he was charged with, uh, aggravated battery with a deadly weapon. Um, and he's, he's 13 and he stabbed his 15 year old brother in the arm three times with the pocket knife. Oh yeah. Fucked up. Um, however, sorry. Uh, as this is going to be funny, it is funny. I mean, no, it's not funny. Fuck. It's not funny, (laughs) but wait. So he's being, you know, they sit him down. He's being, he's being questioned. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, the boy told them, quote, I'd rather be in jail than eight hours in the car with him. End oh. quote. <laughs> okay. That is kind of funny. <laughs> wow. Also that kid's a fucking psychopath. Yeah. What the fuck? Jesus. <laughs> okay. Mine are more lighthearted. <laughs> I have two short ones. One, it sounds like it's going to be a Florida story, but it's actually a Chicago story. Chi-town. And these are both from the AP Oddities uh, page. And uh, this is uh, from uh, the AP, and it's uh, Chicago police investigators uh, confirm alligator in lagoon. So this is not in Florida. This is on the west side of Chicago. There's an alligator? In Humboldt Park. Yes. No. Yes. For real, though. 
like there was a lot of buzz about this, I guess, on some social media around Chicago and enough for the police to be like, yeah, but is there really an alligator in the lagoon in Humboldt Park? Like, really? Really? They confirmed it. There Holy is an alligator in the lagoon in Humboldt Park. over there. <laughs> <laughs> We're fairly close. Um, so they've set up another, a, a number of alligator, you know, traps. So they, they, they get there? They don't know. It's, it's a, a mystery. mystery. Oh. It's true. Okay, my other one is um, a little less mysterious, but <laughs> but definitely funnier. Okay, so it is armored trucks cash rains on Atlanta interstate. Oh, uh, my dream! <laughs> I hear about stuff like this all the time, and I want it to happen. To so, us. but but <laughs> oh, Dunwoody oh. Police Sergeant Robert Parsons would be quick to say, as he did to a local radio station, that taking money off the road is most certainly a crime. They're investigating to see how much is missing, and Parsons says uh, they're going to need to get that cash back. So, yeah. <laughs> Apparently you uh, shouldn't do that. People people do turn it in, though. <laughs> they do. Yeah. And because these incidents, they happen like not that infrequently. In this case... It was an open door. Apparently, they somebody left the door open. Oh, it wasn't like it no, fell? no. That's, that's usually what it up. is. That's usually, it's up. like an accident. That's actually, stealing. I thought it was. Le- I was thinking like like you're standing there and like twenty dollar bills come raining. You just oh start no, picking no. It was up. like the trucks right there, and it's literally coming like out of an open door. It's crazy. I'm sorry. Those are my but weird no. shits in the news. Okay. No, that's not okay. <laughs> you can't do shit like that. Right. As nice as that would be. Yeah. The world don't work like that. Right. No free lunch. Um, no free lunch. Thanks for listening, you guys. Yes. OMG. Sticking with We're us. We're unedited and raw. We're, I, th- I feel like I stopped saying that at some point because it's just like every episode. So it's like whatever. No, not every episode. Lightly edited. Lightly um, but this we're, one, yes. We're Lil Fine Podcast. Uh, yeah, we are, I guess. Um, we're a, what did I say the other day? A gorilla podcast. Not like G O R I L L A, but. Right, G-E. right. You had to spell it for me because I was like, huh? Like, have you ever heard of like gorilla theater? Yes. Like that. Yes. Like that idea. Excuse me, I have we, a degree. Okay? We get shit done. Thank you. Um, whenever it happens. How dare you question my theater intelligence? Um,. Yeah, we need to be in a show together. That's probably going to happen we soon. We need to log need, off. You know, yeah, we'll probably need to be done. Um, thanks for listening. I already said that. Love um, y'all. Love uh, you guys. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Hit us up on Patreon. Yes. A little bit of extra contact, con- content there. A little bit of extra content coming we need to, up. <laughs> we need to do more. Um, yeah, we've got two patron, Patreon subscribers already, so... Our queens. I know. Okay, thanks, guys. Bye bye. Bye. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y dot 
and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.